0: As you know, we're into this uh, second piece of our four-part series coming out of Easter. We're calling it uh, Choices Connected to the Cross. Last week, we talked about it in our message about the choice, of course, that Jesus made to suffer for us. And that is still a part of what we're looking at here, as well as we look back towards the cross, as it were. But we also talked about the choice that was made by a man named Simon. And we talked about how he had been pulled out of the crowd. Last thing on his mind was that somehow he was going to be brought into a story, uh, brought into something that for him at the time must have seemed like just the worst possible scenario to be a visitor on a once-a-lifetime trip in Jerusalem and then to be drawn in from out of the crowd to help carry the cross of Jesus to the place of execution. It was just uh, anything but fun. And uh, we talked about how there, that was a choice, but it was a choice that really wasn't much of a choice at all. And because the option for him was either do it or die. The Romans didn't give you much options. And then, of course, there's our own, you know, we talked about, is, is the Lord calling me into uh, But the, the choices, <laughs> that was quite a ring there. That was, was like, was like I, I, okay, the choices, the odd times that we make, that actually, in, in contrast to this moment, aren't really any fun at all, and they're actually very hard. And we didn't want them. That was the other thing. We talked about the things of life that we have to carry. You know, Jesus, when he carried, he didn't actually carry the full cross. He carried the cross beam. And uh, one of the things that's continued to amaze me is, and I just sat with it, and we sat with it together, was how the Son of God could so fully identify himself with, with us in our broken humanity, really, and in, in, I mean physically speaking, not in our sinful humanity, but in our brokenness, as it were, our weakness. How about that? That he, he was so depleted, he physically was unable to carry his own cross. And it just you know, is somewhat of a reminder to me that, that there are going to be the times when we need other people. The part of God's gift to us are other people who can help carry that cross. If, if Jesus needed it in his earthly self, right, <clears throat> we'll need that too. So can't be, this is not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done with others. So we're going to talk about choice, we're going to talk about relationships, we're going to talk about forgiveness, we're going to talk about how Jesus chose to forgive, and it's an amazing thing when you think about it. Let's go back for a moment to the cross. Let's go back to where we left off. We talked about how Jesus, after the choice was made, we want Barabbas, not Jesus, he was rejected, he was delivered to the Romans. The Romans, not only did they whip him and beat him prior to that decision, but then he was brought back to the Roman garrison, to be prepared for execution. They had some fun with him. We're told the whole garrison, that was the the soldiers that were there gathered together, and they just took him into the outdoor commons in the Praetorium, and they began to have a a whole lot of fun. They beat him, they mocked him, they put a fake robe on him, they put a reed in his hand, said, oh, king of the Jews, and they made a crown out of thorn bush that was there, and they fashioned it, and they placed it on his head, and then they spun him around, and they hit him some more, and they said, prophesy, and it was just awful. Then they stripped him back down, put his clothes back on him, stuck the the wood beam, and began to march him out with the other criminals towards the the hill called Golgotha, which was the place of the skull, is what they called it, either because it was shaped like a skull or because that's where people died. Either way, the name worked great. Every Jerusalemite knew where it was. Um, That's where Jesus was led through the streets of Jerusalem to get to, with with that procession of soldiers that were accompanying him. And as he got there, that's when Simon was called out of the crowd to help him carry it. You know, interestingly enough, crucifixion, was, is, which is often associated with Rome, and, with Rome, was actually not invented by Rome. Rome. Rome wasn't the one who came up with the idea of how to uh, execute people. It was a form of torture, no question about it. Because not only was it, uh, were you nailed, but you, you had a very, very difficult time breathing. I mean, to breathe every time was laborious and painful. We forget that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Rome actually got it from um, when they were in the Punic Wars against Carthage, which was a North African power. Carthage had borrowed it from Persia. That's where they had got it, which is modern-day Iran. And the crucifixion originated there. Romans actually didn't ever crucify a Roman citizen on a cross. That was only meant for rebels, runaway slaves, and criminals. Jesus was thrown into that batch. So this is sort of the deal. Now let's we come to Matthew twenty-seven here, and we just kind of read it with that in mind. It says, "Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. That is the cross of Jesus. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull, which I just referred to, you know, after Jesus was hammered up to the cross, and it was lift the first the cross beam was hammered in, then the vi- the victim Jesus' case was hammered up." and then lift it up. And then during that painful time, uh, one of the things that Rome did, uh, because it was considered to some degree, uh, <laughs> I guess, merciful, was they would offer, offer some type of uh, 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 opiate, potion, uh, something to deaden the pain. And this is what's going on here. It says they offered that to Jesus, but he didn't want it because it was a, it, it possibly, for one, it didn't taste good, but people would take it anyway because they were just breathing in pain, so it would deaden the pain. Uh, but Jesus refused it, I think partly because he wanted to stay very coherent as much as possible, because there were things he was going to say and do. And so he says he refuses it. We're told that. And, um, you know, one of the things we know is that when you were up on that cross, too, People say, oh, it was just the physical suffering of literally being nailed up there and then having such a hard time breathing on it. But there was also the fact that if you're in the middle of the day, if you were crucified, the sun's beating down. Remember, Jesus was so weak. He had lost so much blood. He was dehydrated. He, He had no strength in him at all. He's a man in his prime. He's just got nothing there. He's barely able to just hold himself up and breathe. And then on top of it, you would have the sun beating down on you. You were given nothing. He refused the only drink he was offered. Um, and then on top of that, we know that the, one of the worst things historians say that associated with cru- crucifixion was, and we often don't th- think about it, is that they said there were, you, most of the time there were open wounds and there were flies and gnats just hovering about you, on you, and you, and you couldn't do anything. And they said some, it was not uncommon for, pe- for criminals to go, and the victims to go raving mad on a cross, just lose their mind in absolute torment because it was just agony, long, drawn-out agony. And so this is sort of what's going on here. On top of that, Jesus has people who are yelling at him, who are telling him, if you're such a king like you said you were, come down from the cross. Ho, you said you were the king of Israel. Look at you now. They're spitting on him. They're mocking him. He's physically, I mean, this is an awful scenario that's happening there. And And then Matthew tells us something else. Look at this. It says that then they crucified him, and it's a very starkly stated term. They crucified him. And then they divided his garments, casting lots, That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. One of the things that's important to Matthew's in Matthew's account, because the Gospels each emphasize different things. It's like looking at the same piece of art from different directions. And what you describe is the same piece, but you're seeing it from a different angle. Matthew's account, which is designed to also connect with a lot of Jewish believers, it's important to him that people know that there were things that were said in the Old Old Testament which would have been their Bible, that actually were fulfilled by, by Jesus. That there were things prophesied hundreds of years before about the Messiah and what would happen that actually came to pass when Jesus hung on the cross. And so he stops to pause to say, look at what happens here. Because it says that the soldiers, one of the things that occurs is while Jesus is hanging there, they, the soldiers, after they had put him up there, and they, it was customary, by the way, for the Romans to give the soldiers who were there Whatever possessions the people who were crucified had, which usually weren't much by that point, any clothes that have any value whatsoever, they could, get, they could have them. And so Jesus, it seems, had one thing that was of certain value. It was his tunic, his robe. And it was different because it, didn't have, it wasn't like a, a sewn by a seam. It was actually, John tells us, sewn from top to the bottom it was a one piece, so it had some value. They didn't want to destroy it, tear it up. So what it says they did is they actually decided that while while they're all dying, while Jesus is dying up there at his feet, they're gambling for his clothes, and they're throwing dice. That's what lots are, and they're throwing dice to figure out who wins the the clothes of the, the the hanging guy who thinks he's something special, this king of the Jews guy, Jesus. And Jesus is watching that, and they're watching him, and you know you you're seeing that. You know, but Matthew wants us to realize. He goes, Do you understand that this was actually Foretold, and he pulls his readers back, and he says, "Look at this." He goes, "This is exactly what the prophet said would happen to the suffering Messiah." And I put this passage in, in Psalm from Psalm 22 in the handout. And I found myself, as I looked at this Psalm, Psalm 22, I found myself thinking about Jesus hanging there on the cross. And it says that I he says, "I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax; it's melted within me." My strength is dried up. It's dried up like a potsherd, like sun-baked clay. And my tongue clings to my jaws. My mouth is so dry. My, my, it, my mouth, it, it, my tongue is clinging to the roof of my mouth. You have brought me to the dust of death. And then he looks down and he sees all his accusers. He sees them gambling for his clothes. He says, for, he says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. And look what the writer says. Hundreds of years before it ever happens, he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. And they look and they stare at me. And then this, and they divide my garments. Look at it. Among them and my clothing, for it they cast lots. It's an amazing passage. You know, we look at this and we say, wow, Jesus. And then verse, go back to verse 36. It says, and after they had done that, sitting down. There's this weird kind of eerie silence that flows into the place. Because you almost see this. I see, I see, it says that they sitting down, sitting down, after they were done, they sat down and they kept watch over. Him. And so here is Jesus watching them and watching everybody. And then they sit and they watch him. And there's this juxtaposition. And then we're told something absolutely stunning happens. It so doesn't make sense from a natural standpoint that it shouldn't even be in there. Because in the middle of all this hatred, and in the middle of everything that was happening to our Lord, he did something that was so radically, radically amazing in my mind, that he actually pauses in the middle of his pain to pray. And Luke tells us what he prays. It's the first of the, by the way, of the seven recorded sayings of Jesus on the cross. And the first thing he says is something we weren't expecting, because he does something that you're not supposed to do to people who hate you, who have murdered you, who are humiliating you, who have shamed you, who have beat you, who have done everything possibly that they could. And he says this: this is the first thing he says. On the cross, he says, he prays. He says, Father, and in Luke's account, it's very clear. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, wait a second. What do you mean? I mean, now, again, forgive them. Who is them? Who is he talking about? I mean, is he talking about the Romans who, who humiliated and beat him, beat him? brutalized him, uh, you know, till he was a bloody pulp, had their fun with him, forced him to the streets, hammered him on the cross, stuck him up there, and then gambled for his clothes like vultures while he's dying? Is that them? Is it the people who are around and the leaders who conspired to start the whole thing anyway? His opponents, the ones who had plotted, the one whose power base he threatened, the one who he said, you are not of my father. The ones who are even now saying, you are not what you said you were, and we knew it, and you get it, what you deserve. Is it those men, or is it everybody? Is it a collective Jew and Gentile? I think it is. I think it's all of us. I think it's every. But I think he, who is them? I'll, I look, I don't know specifically, specifically who them is, but one thing uh, we do know, Jesus sets the bar so high. I mean, way high. When he prays for them. He prays for his murderers. He prays for them. He prays. He says, Father, forgive them. And when he says forgive, he wasn't saying like they were exempt from responsibility because you don't need to be forgiven if you didn't do anything wrong. Did They know what they, they? don't know what they do, he says. They don't know what they're doing. But yes, they did. They knew what they were doing. They had put him on the cross. They were killing him. They knew what they, What did he mean. For, they don't know what they do. What he meant was they really don't grasp this, what they really are doing. It, and in Corinthians, it says that they had known that they were crucifying the king of glory. They wouldn't have done it. Or it would have been. They didn't even have an idea. They, they were so blinded, and so in the dark. And it's not like he's saying you're not responsible. But he's praying for them. If they were not. If they were, if their ignorance was an excuse, there was no need for the prayer. But nonetheless, he prays for them. And even in that prayer, it brings to mind a couple of things. In two passages, two portions of scripture stick out. One of them is another amazing prophecy in the Bible, which, by the way, is an underrated um, witness to the amazing integrity of the scripture, that hundreds of years before, a prophet totally disconnected from the situation could be writing this about Messiah. Let me show you what it said in Isaiah 53. You want to read an amazing book in the Bible that talks about Jesus with having no knowledge of him? Isaiah 53. Look what it says here. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And it goes on to say, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, right? Because he poured out his soul unto death. So the Messiah is dying. And he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, lawbreakers, criminals. And Jesus is there dying between two criminals. And it says, and he bore the sin of many. He's bearing the sin of the world, our sin. And then it says this, throws it in there prophetically ahead of time. And he makes intercession for the transgressors, for the lawbreakers that are around, the ones who have even put him to death. He's praying for them. He prays for, He'll pray for another, by the way, which we will see next week. I mean, he's praying for the, and you can see that way ahead of time, it's saying that Jesus is going to be praying for those who have done this to him. And he is fulfilling that. But look at this. Look at the other passage there. Because remember earlier on, Jesus had taught something in Matthew 5, hadn't he? What did it say? He says, you have heard it said. This is what he said earlier. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Love your friend. How about that? but hate your enemy. Hate the one that doesn't like you. He says, and Jesus talking to them, he says, but I say to you something different. And it's still a very hard word. I say to you something different. I say to you, love your enemies. I say to you, if you wanna be like my father, sons of my father, I want you to bless those who curse you. I want you actually to do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who use you in spiteful ways. And I want you to pray for those who persecute you. He so, says, then you will truly be sons of my father, for he makes, think about this, he blesses those who deserve it and those who don't. The sun falls on the good, the bad, the, the rain falls in the same way. He says, listen, and then he uses an illustration. He says, think about who are the worst people. It's like he was talking to the crowd, and he says, who are the worst people that you can think of? They all go, the tax collectors, Right? Okay, Jesus, it's as Jesus says this, you know what? Because you know why? Tax collectors were notoriously despised because they were viewed as traitors to their own people. They worked for Rome to collect taxes from their own people. And on top of it, because they, fig- they were despised, they usually took, the way they made their money was they took a- an extra cut. And people hated it, hated them. But their rationale was, look, if I'm going to be hated, I might as well be hated and rich. <laughs> so they were like the worst of the worst. You know what's interesting? Guess who was a task collector before he came to Christ? Matthew. Matthew. And Jesus says, even the task collectors know how to be friends to their friends. The ones that you think are the worst. He goes, look, it doesn't take much to treat people who treat you well good. It's like, it all works. You take care of me, I take care of you. Jesus says, but you know what it really shows up? He says, it really shows up when you have been hurt, offended, taken advantage of, diminished. And I find myself thinking about this, and I go, Lord, you know, I, I struggled to forgive little things, grievances, words said. Somebody didn't think, said something they shouldn't have said. Something was forgotten. Something is a decision is made. But you know what I'm saying? With the stuff, Think about the stuff we struggle over. You know, they said this about me. Or, you know, uh, uh, they, they, why, why would they treat me like that? You know, they should be loyal. I mean, the things that, that really offend us and break us and get us angry. I mean, you know, it's hard. You know, it's, it's easier to take offense, isn't it? I mean, very quickly. I mean, it's amazing when someone, when someone drive, drives. When you're driving, you get flipped off. <laughs> what comes out or someone swears at you. And the immediate feeling of being dis- demeaned or you had no intention and someone speaks to you with contempt in their mouth and they talk down to you and they, hum- and they speak injurious words in your direction and you go, what are you talking? There's something that comes up. You don't talk like that to me. Or someone we trust violates that trust deeply. The stuff, there's a there's sense of, Lord, I'm, you're not going to do that to me. I will fight you back. You heard me, and others don't do it directly. It's indirect, but it's there nonetheless. These are the things sometimes. You know, you look at this passage, and you say, what Jesus is saying is, look, I want to teach you how to live in a different way, but you know what's amazing to me? He didn't just talk it. He walked it. Because when he gets on the cross, he did exactly what he told everybody else to do. He said, Father, forgive them. He did it, and you know what? There is an essential congruency about the way Jesus lived. There there was no real distance between how he talked and how he lived, and so there was an authority that even went just in his humanity. By the way, that's a key to, to authority in our lives and influence and impact. However aligned we can be between what we profess and how we actually live it out creates power and influence and effect. A lot of times, when we say one thing, but we're not doing another. It, has, it dissipates the authority of that truth. Anyway, the fact is, Jesus, he lived it. So let me submit a couple of things around this, because I'm going to say, that when I look at that, when I watch what he models, I'm amazed, firstly. But I'm going to suggest that Jesus models for us radical forgiveness. And I'm going to also make, try to submit That for those of us who follow the Lord, there will be times when the Lord will challenge us to radically forgive someone. Now, as far as I can tell, you look at the passage, but as far as I can tell, nobody went up to Jesus and said, We are so sorry. We now recognize what we have done. Would you please forgive us? Yes, Father, forgive them. What he was getting was nothing. Silence would have been gracious. But he blesses them, and he blesses the ones who are not deserving of it. He is a radical forgiver in that moment. And I'm going to say that there are times when the Lord will say to us, this makes no sense logically. It's not something that that person deserves. That's why we call something grace. They don't even deserve mercy, which is the withholding of judgment. But to bless them on top of it, that's crazy. That is crazy. No way. But there will be times when the Lord will say, listen, to be my son, to be my daughter, in this situation, I want you to forgive. I want you to forgive. But, Lord, I don't want to forgive. I'm so mad. I'm so hurt. I I have nothing to get, Lord, it's like, it's like, the, I'll try, if you'll help me. But there are times where actually it is in our power to do so, and the Lord is saying, you need to let it be. You just need to let it be. But I need to get, I need to to retaliate. They hurt me. I need to get back. I need to make this right. I need to get, he's saying, no. And the Lord will say to us, there are times where the Lord will say, in certain situations, we will know it. We will know it in our heart. We will hear it just as loud and clear It's as if the Lord is saying to us, no, my son, my daughter, let it go. Forgive. Radical forgiveness. Because you know why? As a whole, so I'm saying there are some situations that are like that. But as a whole, you and I have been called to live a forgiving life. And that's our second, the second piece here, that we must choose to live the forgiving life. So, okay, notice the difference between the first and second. I'm saying there are some situations where God will challenge us to be illogical and forgive when it doesn't seem like that. That's anything we want to do is forgive you. And Lord will say, forgive as you have been forgiven. And as a whole, the way of life for a follower of the Lord is a way of forgiveness. I put this last portion of scripture in your handout from Ephesians, a fantastic passage. Just look at it with me real quick. Look what it says. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. By the way, you know what that tells us? We can break God's heart by the way we live. Lord, I don't want to break your heart. Lord, help me not to bring you sorrow in my life help me to live in a way that brings you joy you have loved me with a love that is astonishingly committed and you challenge me to love you in a loyal with a loyal heart and, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as own. Well. He called you. If you've, this is written to a followers of Jesus. And he says, guaranteeing you that you will be saved on the day of his, of his coming, of redemption. The day, get, and then he says, in the meantime, look at this, you guys. Get rid. Look what he says. Get rid. Get rid. Clean the house. Empty the closet. Get rid. Get rid of all bitterness, bitterness and rage and anger Get it out. Be done with it. And it's not just the violent anger. It's not just the obvious anger. It can be a lot of us. That's not who we are. We're low-grade anger. We're passive anger. We, we haven't said anything, but it's eating us up on the inside. We're so upset. We're so angry. We're so hurt. We're so wounded. We want so badly for that person to pay. For what they have done to us, the breaking of our heart. You know what I'm saying is that the Bible is clear, though, this does not serve. Do not live like this. Do not have a life filled with bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words. What are harsh words? The words that come out of our mouth that do a whole lot of damage. When we're upset, we got to be very careful, the Bible says, about what comes out of us. And that's why we have to be careful also about what goes into us. Because input produces output. The way we converse, our media choices, all those things affect what comes out. But there's something about harsh words that are meant to hurt, that are meant to do damage. You know, some words define people for years. And we said them so casually in our anger. Just maybe not the word casually, recklessly. You hurt me? Wow! There it goes. you won, you win, but you just killed me, that's not, he said, don't live like, don't be like that, not, not, not when you follow me, don't do that, this is what I want you to do, he says, I want you to avoid slander, don't speak honest words, as well as all types of evil behavior, watch how we live, live by the word of God, not by what the word of our culture says our cultures flippant this way one generation this way the next live by the word but look what he says instead i want you to live like this with one another stay with me be kind be kind to each other cultivate a tender heartedness to one another don't be callous mean spirited uncaring hard to be with moody angry no Tender heart, Lord. You know what you want to say. You say, "Well, that's not." I'm. I want that. Do you know what? Ask God for it. In your private time, Lord, soften my heart. Lord, soften me. Break me free. I want to be like this, tender-hearted. Um, look what else: forgiving, one, forgiving one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Last thing I'll say, (laughs) forgiveness really can be understood to have a threefold blessing attached to it. It's kind of, in my mind, a threefold dimension. I will say this very rapidly, but at the same time, I hope to just get us thinking about it. When we forgive someone who has hurt us, they are blessed. So we forgive the offender, the the, the one who does the damage. Because a lot of times, you know what? There are a lot of people who live with significant amount of guilt and they deserve it. We are loved by God, and we break his heart on more than once we have. So we bless the offender, yes? Secondly, though, we also what? We bless ourselves. Because freedom, uh, the freedom of forgiveness. Uh, I'm, I'm breaking out. I'm breaking out. I've had someone say to me, "I'm, I'm getting free. I'm free. I'm getting free. I, I, I've, I I'm free. You know, the, the, the air is coming through the room. the, the, the sun is shining through. The wind is blowing. The darkness is leaving. The cloud that's been sitting on me, it's going away. I, in my forgiveness, I'm finding my freedom. I, we, you know, the old saying: you, you forgive someone, you set a captive free. You know, that captive is us." This is much to free us. Jesus said, I want you to live light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Walk with me. Love people. Love God. Get over things. Don't be offended. Don't be bitter. Forgive well, love well, grow, walk with me. The Psalms 23, at the end of it, it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Just I just see goodness and mercy flying out as we walk through life, right? All oh, Following me all the days of my life. Lord, it doesn't always work that way, but may it work more that way. And that's the last thing I'll say. The last of the last, right? It blesses others. Hear me. The decisions we make affect people more than we know. And what goes on inside has a vicarious or indirect effect on a whole lot of other people. Many of us have been affected by others. We've been deeply affected. There's something about choosing to live the forgiving life that creates the movement of joy and brings the life of God that when we choose to walk this way and live this way and love this way, we get better faster. Yes, we will be wounded at times. Yes, it's not always easy. Yes, we will have to wrestle through things. Yes, it will cost us something at times. But the blessing, oh, my goodness, the blessing in it. How many people live out of it? How many people live? How many people um, are are not defined by our hurt because we've given it to God? How many people live because we forgive? I mean, this this is it. This is the blessing. This is what happens. We walk around with the blessing of God, and it's not always easy, but God will fill us with grace. If we ask him, God will fill us with his grace to do better, to follow in the path that he laid out for us. He modeled it. He's not like we're ever going to... I don't think... I'll, we're not going to get... But you know what? We can, we can, we can follow him. We can. And it's going to make a difference. It is. People are going to live, and some of them are going to bless... Others beyond I mean we're talking sending down the blessing. All right, Lord. I I thank you so much for your words and your example, Lord, that you gave us, you gave me. And so, Lord, in those moments, maybe this week, when we are tempted to hold on to stuff, tempted to be retaliatory, tempted to want to hurt back, Lord. Um Pray that we will remember in some small way this amazing example you gave us, not only what you do for us on a regular basis, because sometimes, Lord, that seems so far away. Yeah, because you're God and and you're Jesus and and we're not. But you still, you call us to live the things that you've given us to live into. And you've not only called us to do it so that we can be that blessing, but Lord, you've promised to, to give us the strength to do it. And right now, Lord, we want to be open to that. So I just really pray that in these closing minutes, as we ponder these things, there's a song which really talks about being bathed with your grace. In our time of giving, that you would be honored in these closing minutes, Lord, as we seek to honor you together, live in our life, and let others live out of it. In Jesus' name, amen.